The Word of Mouth podcast is brought to you by Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Imagine nationally ranked healthcare in your community. With convenient locations throughout northern New England, world-class providers are closer than you think. Visit dartmouthhitchcock.org to learn more. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is here. Word of Mouth. 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 Mouth. This is Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott, and it's time for another edition of Civics 101, the podcast refresher course on some basics you may have forgotten or slept through in school. We do our best to answer your questions about how American democracy works, but many of you have also told us that you like to get that insider view from people who work or have worked in government. And that's what we've got on tap for us today, a real treat. Sarah DePerry was senior presidential speechwriter for Barack Obama. She's going to tell us a little bit about how the sausage was made. Sarah, welcome to Civics 101. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So how does one become a speechwriter? You know, I have no idea. If you if you put a bunch of speechwriters into a room and asked them how they became speechwriters, they would probably each give you a different story. So some people historically have come to speechwriting by way of journalism. Others kind of fell into it um, doing various communications jobs. And, you know, maybe you're on a campaign and you were the best writer. And so you just kind of fell into that role. I actually worked in policy for a long time. I was on Capitol Hill um, working for a senator doing health care and education policy. And I sort of woke up one day and, and realized that I really wanted to be writing. And so a friend put me in touch with somebody who was a speechwriter, and it kind of just went from there. How do you get someone else's voice? So I actually think it's less about getting how someone speaks and more about how someone thinks. And so you really want to spend time sort of immersing yourself in, um, in in their thinking, which is often in the form of, you know, talking to them and spending as much time as you can. In the case of working for the president, you might get limited time with the person. But um, I had the good fortune of working for somebody who had been in office for a few years. And so I could read every single thing President Obama had said, you know, read all of the transcripts of the interviews he had given, um, his books, you know, even when he was on Jimmy Fallon or something. So really immersing yourself in all of their public comments and as well as conversations with them to kind of figure out how they see the world and use that to kind of develop your sense of their voice. Hmm. Does that rub off? I mean, did you find yourself sort of thinking like the president? Not as brilliantly, but it, it is funny how you sort of, especially when you're writing for one person, I would joke that I kind of started to kind of inhabit the mind and soul of Barack Obama in some way, right? So, you know, whenever something happened in the world, my first question wasn't, what do I think? It was, what does Barack Obama think about this? You thought about um, having a press conference? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> we're, we're ghosts for a reason. <laughs> so, yeah, let's hear a little bit about that, because I wonder if, you know, he, I'm sure in many cases with Barack Obama, especially well-known as an orator, does, is it annoying at all to have someone else getting all the credit for the stuff that you write? No, 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 it's not at all. For, well, first of all, I don't think, I, I think it would be disingenuous for us to say that we wrote and write everything as speechwriters. The best speeches are, are collaborations. And so what we're really trying to do, and certainly in the case of the president, but with anyone that you work with, is help them figure out what they want to say and then 
um, more often than not use their words to do that. So it's really a collaboration. And with President Obama, we weren't making up policy. We weren't making up what he wanted to say. We got that direction from him. And, you know, if you want credit for what you say that or what you write, then write it under your own byline and go and give the speech. But ultimately, you know, when President Obama gave a speech that I had worked with him on, it was he who was held accountable for it, right? Not me. And so my job is is to help him do that the best he can. But we're not there to take the credit for having helped them craft that. At least that's what I think. So let's go through a little bit of that preparation, how it goes. You know, that uh, you get assigned a speech. You said it's a collaboration. So do you meet with the rest of the staff? Do you have to do research? Do you have conversations with the person about what they're looking for? How's it go? Yeah, so I um, suspect that every White House is different, um, although I, I you know, think that the processes are probably kind of passed along. So in our case, um, our director of speech writing, my boss, Cody Keenan, would sit down with, the, with us, with our team, and kind of go through the schedule and help tell us what was coming up generally, and then kind of divide up the speeches based on people's time, people's interest, you know, who had availability. So you get assigned a speech, and it could be Anything from this is happening in two days, sorry, you better get get going on it. Or it could be this is happening, you know, this is a commencement address that's happening in a month and a half and you have some time. Typically, it was maybe a week ahead of time that we had. Um, and then if it was a policy speech or um, something along those lines, you would meet with the relevant policy people. You learn about the policy. They tell you kind of generally what the message ought to be. Um, and then you go back and you work on a draft. And from there... I would, you know, we would write a draft. Let's say I was writing an education policy speech. I would do a draft, um, send it to my boss, who would then edit it, and then we would circulate it around the building. And what that means is the lawyers are seeing it, the fact checkers are seeing it, the policy people are seeing it, and everybody has an opportunity to weigh in with their thoughts, make sure things are accurate, make sh- making sure that we're also appropriately reflecting the policy, and then it goes to the president who would make his edits usually by hand, because he was a, a, you know, a writer in that way. Um, and then we would take the draft from there and go final. There are some speeches, um, many actually, where we would get his input on the front end. So he, we might meet with him as in advance as possible to get his thinking up front and then use that to incorporate into your draft. And then you go back and forth with him from there. But it really depended on the nature of the speech. It's funny because I was reading a a little bit about the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, and they picked up on you having to return a book to a library on Shimon Shimon Paris. That was one of your last chores. So so clearly you're doing your own research, too, on someone like, in this case, Shimon Paris from a, a book from the War Department Library. So that particular book had been taken out by our assistant speechwriter, whose part one of her jobs was to help us with research. Um, and she had been working with another speechwriter on on the eulogy for Shimon Perez. But yes, we did a lot of our own research. Um, as speechwriters, I think, and actually as writers, I think research is sort of half the battle. I suspect you'd get this if you talk to other speechwriters too, but we're sort of always, we're collectors of ideas and interesting stories and quotes and historical references that can help enhance the argument that you're making or the story that you're telling. Since you work with a lot of speechwriters, this must happen that a speechwriter might disagree with something that the person delivering it is wanting to express. Did that ever happen for you? So I think in general, yes, I mean, that certainly happens to people. And I'm lucky in that 
in the White House working for President Obama, I did not experience that. I mean, it would be hard to work for a president with whom you disagree. Now, I also now write for a range of people. And before um, going to the White House, I did as well. And yeah, sometimes you do, you know, you end up working for somebody that, or writing on a particular issue that maybe you you have differences with. And I think for everyone, it's kind of personal, right? So you have to decide, is this something that, you know, I'm helping this person convey their views on something and my fidelity is to them and their ideas and can I be comfortable with that? Or is this a values issue? Is this something that crosses my boundaries personally and I can't do that? I've heard people say, and I think this is true, that if it's not a values issue, if it's not deeply personal, but you generally disagree with the viewpoint that your speaker is taking, it can actually be helpful to disagree with that person because then you know the opposite side of the argument. You know it pretty well, and so you know how to counter that. What do you think makes a great speech? So when people think about what makes a great speech, they'll often think that it's sort of really beautiful, soaring language and a kind of rhetoric. But I actually think that if you were to strip all of that away, what you would really find in the best speeches is a clear and persuasive argument. And the way you get to that is by having a central purpose, sort of knowing why you're giving this speech and what exactly you want to convey so that at the end of the speech, the audience knows what it ought to think and feel and do. And what often happens when we give a speech is that if the speaker has not identified what that is, why am I delivering this and what do I want the audience to think at the end, it can kind of become what we call a Christmas tree. You sort of put a lot of ornaments on the tree. It gets filled up with ideas, but there's no sort of driving, animating idea behind it mm-hmm. that gives the speech a sense of inevitability. And so it gets cluttered. But a great speech kind of strips all of that away and makes an argument for one central idea. Now that is then enhanced by interesting stories and colorful language. You want to pace it properly, you know, vary your sentence structure, cadence, rhythm, all of that. But I think if you don't have a central argument, um, it's probably just going to be okay. Sarah DePerry, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Sarah DePerry was special assistant to the president and senior presidential speechwriter for Barack Obama. As always, we invite your questions about how our democracy works. You can email us or leave a voice memo at our website, civics101podcast.org, or call our listener line, 202-798-6865. Word of mouth. 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 This is Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott. Feather Tucker is a fiery 14-year-old who lives on a tiny village green famous for two things. It is the smallest village in Britain and home to one of the country's most obese women, her mother, Jo. After finding her mother in a diabetic coma on New Year's Eve, Feather embarks on a multi-step strategy to save her mother's life, which turns into an investigation of secrets long held by her family and neighbors. Feather is the complicated, feisty central character in a new YA novel called Wishbones. Author Virginia McGregor follows Feather as she strains against the weight of her discoveries, 
while pursuing her own wish to win the Junior UK Swimming Championships. Wishbones is the third novel by Virginia McGregor, who now lives in New Hampshire. And welcome to Word of Mouth. Thank you. So we just got a little thumbnail of Feather. Fill out that picture of her for us. Um, so she is on the cusp of becoming an adult. So she's making that transition from childhood to adulthood, which I find so interesting to write about. And it's a point of view that I love writing from. I've worked with teenagers my whole life as a teacher and as a um, house parent in England. Um, and I think at that stage, you go through a really interesting relationship with your parents where you go from maybe idealizing them or seeing them um, in quite a black and white way to suddenly seeing the gray and seeing the flaws, flawed side of your parents. So Feather is very close to her mother. She's um, her mother's best friend. She cares for her mother. And that's something I explore as well, being a child carer. Um, and she never really questions in a way that children don't, I think, when they're very young, why she is so overweight, why she hasn't left the house in so many years, why her father keeps feeding her rubbish. Um, and then as she grows up and as she sees that her mother is sick and, and the crunch point is the opening of the novel where it's New Year's Eve and she she has a her mother has a fit and then is found to be in a diabetic coma she realizes that there's something really not right with her family and she begins to ask questions and this is what teenagers do they question their parents they question themselves they question the world um, and so what she's going through is a sort of metaphor I suppose for, for teenagehood um, and what she comes to realize which is what we all come to realize is that we don't really know our parents we only know a tiny fragment of, of their lives and often in a way that's quite self-centered we know what it is that relates to us as human beings. And um, what Feather does is going on a journey to discover who her mother is, who her father is, and what happened before she was born, um, and how that's had an impact on the way her parents are now. Well, that shift in focus from an idealized mother to seeing her a little differently is a dramatic one in the case of her mom, she's too big mm -hmm. to be put in an ambulance, so she's mm -hmm. lifted by a crane in front of all of her neighbors. It's, it's a mortifying moment mm -hmm. for Feather, who feels guilty for being mortified. But it also shows how deep the denial is. Mm. Uh, do you think that's something we all need to go through? D did you? Mm. I think um, we do it with everyone that we love. Um, I think we forgive them and we overlook and we sometimes even nourish the things that damage them. And I find that fascinating because it's harder to do the alternative. It's harder to question the flaw. It's harder to question the the thing that is not normal. Um, and, you know, certainly for me, when I was growing up, my parents, when I was about Feather's age, got divorced and my mother went through a very tough time and you know emotionally and physically and I had to come to see her as a, a very different human being from the one that I'd grown up with who was this very strong physically and she used to win tennis championships and fly off to Paris to do simultaneous translations and she was you know she was a very sociable person and then became a very broken person and so, yes, I think um, we all live in denial. I think of, of the flaws and the weaknesses of the people we love. And I think it takes courage to face them. And I think one of Feather's uh, distinguishing characteristics is that she is very courageous. Um, and that's what takes her on this journey of discovery. And she has been uh, uh, adultified. She's yes. been, as you, you said, she's become a caregiver, focused on her mother's needs around her father's mm -hmm. schedule. I wonder how many teenagers do feel like they are 
caregivers. Mm. I think it's remarkable how many, um, certainly in the UK, when I was researching this book and I was looking at, of course, at eating disorders and obesity and all of that. But I also looked and I, I looked at it in my first book, What Milo Saw, which is a book for adults, but also has a child protagonist called Milo, who's nine years old. And he cares quite a bit for his great grandmother. And I do think children take it on themselves to look after their parents um, and sometimes in a really, really significant way if their parents are sick in a world where care is very expensive or not available um, and they don't often question it and the adults in their lives don't sometimes take that burden off them and I see it in the tiniest ways. I have a three-year-old who's waking up to the world and you know, she will see me sometimes when I'm weak and she'll want to do something to help. And you just accentuate that and imagine what that's like if you have a disability or a difficulty. And children are, are amazing at their capacity to, to support beyond their age and their capacity. You mentioned exploring eating disorders, Joe, mm. at 500 plus pounds, mm. one of Britain's most obese women. You know, people have snuck mm. photographs of her. There's also a character with anorexia in the book and a male character, an American boy called Clay who lands in their little village. So what drew you to these two extremes of eating disorders? I find the psychology of eating fascinating. And I sort of wanted to show the mirror image between someone who overate and someone who underate to say that actually, yes, they're very different conditions, but sometimes, you know, they could be triggered by similar um, traumas or by a, an emotional route but n- more than perhaps a physical route and having Feather in the middle of that so she falls in love with this young boy called Clay who um, comes to the village and discovers that he is struggling with this eating disorder in the way that her mother is struggling with a, an eating disorder and that they have reasons for it and I wanted to to question um, I suppose why in, in modern life we have such a complex relationship to food and to our bodies it's such a It's such a natural, essential part of life, eating. And yet we've turned it into such a a complex, complex thing. And I grew up, I write at the end of the book in an author's note, I grew up in a very competitive girls' school in Oxford. We were quite driven and the profile was just perfect. You know, perfectionist girls in a, a... town where we were all pushed towards very high achieving universities um, and in a girls school where you're comparing each other all the time where you have very little access to men so you kind of idealize young boys and um, the pictures you have of of women and and other boys are uh, not very realistic Um, and so you know we had competitions to see how little we could eat and um, I've seen this even as a teacher now with girls and um, with boys which which interested me and that's why I wrote about it Um, and I think that there's a spectrum on which young people are that that yes some people are at the extreme end of anorexia and eating disorders but there are quite a few who are on that spectrum who are playing with it or who are teetering on the edge of it and um, I think we're only beginning to understand the psychology of it. Yeah and it is more commonly talked about with girls certainly than boys Mm. so are you uncovering another hidden issue here? Um, I actually had a program on this on NHPR a little while ago um, and I think you have a local charity that looks at um, in New Hampshire that looks at male anorexia Um, and it is something that is so hard for boys because 
it's a taboo. They can't talk about it in the same way. Um, but it is absolutely um, present. And I first came across it when I was a teacher in my first teaching job. And there was a boy in my English class and he was very thin. And then one day he started telling me about how many calories there were in a packet of Special K and how he'd spent a whole week surviving on just that that packet. And alarm bells started going off. And I you know, got to know him and he opened up a little bit and I realised how little support there was for him and how impossible it was for him to talk to fellow boys. And my husband, who's a trained actor, you know, he said eating disorders amongst actors are very, very common where, you know, weight is such a big issue. Um, And so I think it's harder for men to find help and it's far harder for men to talk about and young boys especially. And I hope that my book might open that up for discussion a little bit. I'm speaking with New Hampshire author Virginia McGregor about her new YA novel. It's called Wishbones. Feather, the character in this novel, she's determined to get her mother healthy. She's going to a support group. She wants her to start dieting and exercising. And one after another, people tell her it's not up to her. Mm-hmm. It's her mother's decision. But there are many people who are also protecting her. There's this whole system mm-hmm. of tiptoeing around the person who is sick. Mm. I think that's common in families. Is that Mm. something you've observed? Absolutely. And I think one of the really interesting dynamics I wanted to explore was how the father relates to the mother. So one of the things Feather doesn't understand is why her father doesn't help more and why he is so deferential to his mother, her mother, and why he doesn't understand that she needs to lose weight to get better. And the rest of the village as she comes to to know are keeping a secret from her and uh, are holding back from from being more active in helping her mother. And that comes from a knowledge that they have of what happened in the past. And I think sometimes when people undergo a tragedy in their lives, um, we become very nervous about challenging the behaviour that results from that, even the self-destructive behaviour, because we want to forgive them and we want to be tolerant of it and we understand it. And we feel that we might rock the boat. Um, And so one thing Feather doesn't know, she doesn't have this piece of the puzzle. Why is her mother the way she is? And everyone around her actually does have that piece of the puzzle. And that's why they don't dare touch it, don't touch the weight issue or the leaving the house issue, because they, they feel that it would be too much to question it. We know so much about the erratic Mm. nature of the teenage brain, you know, just going for pleasure Mm. centers, you know, from a neurological point of view. But you were talking earlier about how so many teenagers are put in this position of caring for their parents Mm. or they're dealing with really difficult things in the world. And I wonder if we undersell their capacity. Mm. Is that what YA novels do in some sense, that they they normalize it? They give kids the opportunity to thrash things out Mm. in even a messy way. And it gives them a voice. I think that's what fiction is about, isn't it? It's about giving giving people a voice who sometimes aren't heard or aren't presented or aren't understood. And that's what teenagers want more than anything. They want to be heard, don't they? They want to be understood. Um, and fiction gives them that place where I think they feel so validated when they read um, a novel that represents them accurately. And, and you have to, as an adult, when you're writing from a teenage point of view, be very careful not to you know, appropriate or claim a perspective that is inauthentic. Um, But I think if you get it right, it makes them feel um, validated and um, it makes their voices heard. And young adult fiction, I think, is particularly important because 
the young adults who read it have this intimate space through long fiction, through long periods of time when they're reading a novel, where they can, um, it's sort of therapy, I suppose. They feel themselves reflected. They feel themselves less alone. They feel themselves more understood. They're able to explore big and difficult and scary issues in a relatively safe place. Um, and I think for adults reading young adult fiction, and there are lots of adults reading young adult fiction, it helps us to understand teenagers a little better. So it makes us empathise with them more. So young adult fiction didn't really exist when I was growing up, but I wish it had because it offers, I think, a great deal to all of us. One more thing I want to mention that Joe, Feather's mother, has not left the house in 13 years. Yeah. And they live on this tiny little mm. village green, you know, their house <laughs> is all sort of around this central yeah. square, I guess. And, and and there's a level of paranoia that she thinks of all of her neighbors gawping at her. Mm. But everybody on the screen has their secrets. Yeah. They're, they're in this tiny village but disconnected in so many ways. Mm. What, what are you getting at there about how we socialize? Yes. Um, maybe that's me living in boarding schools as well, which I think are sometimes the last small villages in the world because, you know, life has become so so different now. Um, and and it is this, this funny mix of living at very close quarters with someone and seeing their lives quite intimately, but also being quite removed from them. Um, and I don't know, it's quite a British thing, the small village and people looking behind the net curtains. And in England, people are more restrained. I've just made the move from England to America last um, July and noticed the huge difference that people in America are more open with their lives and more willing to knock on your front door and leave you food and, and be present when things are, are hard. And I think the English have this funny dance that they do when things are strange or, or when people have difficulties that they sort of want to help but there's a reserve that they're curious and nosy but at the same time they want to show restraint and and I think the quirk, the British quirkiness of the book will I hope entertain American readers too because there are some things which are universal but some things which are also very English in how that, that small village green behaves. I think we know a little bit about <laughs> that in New England. <laughs> well, Virginia McGregor, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Virginia McGregor, her new novel for young adults is called Wishbones, and there's a book launch party and reading at Gibson's Bookstore in Concord on Tuesday, May 23rd at 7 o'clock. There's more on the event at wordofmouthradio.org. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. This is Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott. Yoga is a thing. If you had any doubt of its popularity, just Google yoga near you and see the astounding variety of classes. Hot yoga, prenatal yoga, classes that focus on fitness or breathing or laughter. There's even something called goat yoga. Despite that, and the fact that you don't need expensive gear or accessories, yoga culture can still seem exclusive or intimidating. That's where Jessamyn Stanley comes in. She does not fit the yoga instructor as skinny white woman stereotype. She is a black, self-styled fat femme. For the past several years, she's documented her own yoga practice and teaching to now 300,000 Instagram followers. And she's turned her internet celebrity into a book. Everybody Yoga. Hello, Jessamine. Hey, Virginia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm so glad you are because you write about starting off having this vague sense that yoga was not for you. 
And I think a lot of people get that. So what was it about the experience for you that was off-putting? Well, it was, you know, not to speak too crudely, but it was extremely hard for me. I found that the asana, the poses, seemed a borderline impossible. And I was surrounded by people who were much smaller than I was, and it seemed like everyone had the same outfit on and that I was just the odd person out who couldn't do anything, and I just totally thought this is not going to be for me at all. And I actually, the very first time that I ever tried yoga, it was such a negative experience that I said, I'm not doing this. It's not for me. And I didn't try it again for another seven years. And when I did finally go back to it, I was in a very different place in my life. I was also really dealing with a a pretty severe period of depression. And one of my classmates, I was in graduate school at the time, and one of my classmates was like, oh my God, try Bikram yoga. You're going to love it. And I said, absolutely not. I've done it before. I know it's not for me. And she just wore me down and I went and I loved it. Everything about it was exactly as it had been that first time. It was still extremely difficult. I was still the fattest person. I still felt like I wasn't supposed to be there in certain ways. But I also, it gave me this opportunity to try in a way that I was not trying in my day-to-day life. It pushed me, without my consent in many cases, it pushed me out of my comfort zone and made me see myself and see the universe in a very different way. And as a result, that, that's really, that sensation is why I keep coming back to the practice. And you also found inclusion and guidance on Instagram. How did that happen? Mm. Well, I was... I was practicing yoga at home, and I wanted to track my progress over time. One of the things that turns people off from a home practice is that you don't have anything. You don't have a teacher there that's telling you that what you're doing is correct. And this was before. Now Instagram is really popular, but back then Instagram was just, you know, a few yoga practitioners, a few teachers giving each other feedback, and I wanted to receive that kind of feedback. I wanted alignment tips. I wanted to feel like I was a part of a community outside of my, you know, local yoga community. And I realized over time that the response I was getting from people wasn't really, like, that much feedback about yoga. It was predominantly people saying, I didn't know fat people could do yoga. And I was just like, why do you think fat people can't do yoga? Fat people do all kinds of things. I'm not even the first fat black person to put pictures of themselves on Instagram. So I was just like, we have a major visibility problem here. There's a, there is a idea in our society that only slender, white, cisgender, heterosexual women practice yoga, and that's just not the case. And it just turned into a space where I could show that I'm not a unicorn. There are plenty of different body people who practice yoga. Well, Instagram, of course, is all about the visual. So how did you do that? You take photographs of yourself, what, on a timer doing poses? Well, when I first started taking them, I asked my roommate if she would take them for me, and she said absolutely not. And so I had to figure out a way to do it myself. And I used to use I mean, almost all of my favorite photos were just taken with my old Samsung phone. I used a a timer app called Self Timer App. It's a 30-second timer. You take four photos at the end of 30 seconds. And, you know, it seems like you see one photo on Instagram and it's like, oh, wow, that's one beautiful moment in time. But in order to get that one photo, you have to take at least 50 photos. So I would do the asana over and over and over again. And, And I do still document my practice in that way, but... My the way that my Instagram is shaped now is very different than it was in the beginning, but it was always a very um, powerful meditation for me, the process of, you know, 
taking the photos and really breathing into the asana and and really observing my body and the way that it moves. It's it's been a very important body positivity practice, honestly, and a very important self care practice. Jessamine Stanley's with us. She is a self-described fat femme, and she's also a teacher, Instagram celebrity, and now author of Everybody Yoga. It's a guide and introduction to yoga that is not restricted by body type or background. Well, I love your writing voice in this book. It's very friendly, kind of profane. You know, who gives a flying bleep if I'm not mastering a pose? You're right. But it feels very helpful in getting past what may be sometimes perceived as a very serious tone about one's focus and practice of yoga. Exactly. And that was a huge thing for me because so much of what annoys me about the yoga industry right now is that there's all this holier-than-thou speech going on. There's so many people that are like, "Mm, namaste, love and rainbows, look how perfect I am, look at my life. I've, I've started practicing yoga, and if you do what I did, then you can be perfect too. And it's just not like that at all. Really, yoga is about looking at the truth and looking at and being authentic and really just observing and so that you can accept. And that doesn't mean everything is going to be pretty all the time. It just means that everything is going to be honest. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, that's really what, that's what the book is about. It's about honesty. And so I hope that people who read it, who maybe have felt like their lives aren't perfect enough to practice yoga, they're not flexible enough, they're not calm enough, they don't, they don't have the right um, mentality, they can't stay still long enough, that they can see a person who feels that exact same way and still practices yoga, because those are the ingredients. If you feel that way, that means that you're perfect to do this practice, not the other way around. Well, there is a deep emotional sense of self undertone to the book, but there's also a very sort of practical aspect, which means you're adapting certain poses by using blocks or other tools. And and you were just talking about, you know, accepting where you are, moving through it, changing your capacity to try a pose over and over again. So so if somebody says to you, I'm a big person, I'm, you know, don't have any background in yoga, where do you tell them to begin? I mean, I think that the best thing to do is to just throw yourself into it. There's a tendency, especially if you're fat body, to say like, I need to go to a gentle class, I need to go to a beginner class, I need to find a teacher who knows how to work with my body. All of those things are amazing. I don't think that you necessarily have to go to a beginner or a gentle class. You can if you want to. I always recommend that people just go to all levels classes. I started yoga with a fairly difficult style of yoga. It's called Bikram yoga, the style of hot yoga. And I, I've thought that that was the best. I mean, like, I I never had an experience where it was like, oh, learn these beginner poses, and then you can start to work your way up. No, just throw yourself into something, because the reality is that in the beginning, no matter where you are, no matter what your body looks like, you are not going to know what you're doing. You're going to be falling down. You're going to be sweating. You're going to be, like, feeling a lot of sensation, and you just need to be in an environment where it's okay to do that. So the most important thing really is to find an environment where you don't feel self-conscious and where the teacher isn't making you feel shameful about yourself and the other people in the room are not making you feel shameful. And that is really the key because the reason that people end up not wanting to go to a yoga class is because they're afraid of the other people who are in the room. 
Well, Jessamine, now you are a full-fledged yoga teacher. You are on a book tour that is, you've got dates all over the place. Did you ever expect <laughs> that you'd eventually find your calling when you went to that first Absolutely or, I guess, not. second yeah. class? <laughs> yeah. No, definitely not. And I actually, I was really against becoming a yoga teacher for a very long time and because I didn't understand why I needed to be a teacher. There are literally thousands of yoga teachers. And my opinion about this has obviously shifted quite a bit. But I feel as though I, feel as though I have had an amazing gift to be able to live in my truth in this way at this point in my life. But I'm I'm not going to presume to know that, like, this is the be-all, end-all of my life. I have no idea what's coming next. Something can come in the next couple of years to completely turn all of this upside down. But what I do know to be true is that this yoga practice has completely altered the way that I see the universe. And I am going to continue to walk this path for as long as I'm meant to walk it. And if other people would like to practice with me along the way, then that's dope. But that's not really my motivating factor. Jessamine Stanley, author of Everybody Yoga. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. She's going to be at the Boston Public Library for a talk and book signing on June 6th. You can find more information about that at wordofmouthradio.org. Thanks so much for spending some of your weekend with us. Music in this episode came from Gillicuddy, Revolution Void, Broke for Free, and Ikimashu Aoi. There's loads more to hear and explore at wordofmouthradio.org. Keep in touch on Facebook at Word of Mouth Radio and on Twitter at Word of Mouth or listen on your own schedule. Just search Word of Mouth NHPR in iTunes or Google Play for the Word of Mouth podcast. And it's a big help to us if you rate it on iTunes, which helps other people find it. Because, you know, things go so much further when shared by word of mouth. I'm Virginia Prescott. Until next time, this is New Hampshire Public Radio.